Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Karen Storr. Karen is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Senior Research Scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University. Karen is a moral philosopher whose research focuses on virtue, broadly conceived. This work leads Karen to investigate the nature of friendship, practical wisdom, beneficence, civility, and similar topics. But in addition, Karen argues that the social niceties that are commonly characterized as manners have distinctively moral content and call for philosophical analysis. Her recent book, which is titled On Manners, explores this. Hi, Karen. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. So let's get to it, uh, Karen. According to many... The political scene in the United States, these days at least, is saturated uh, with incivility, distrust, uh, antagonism, and resentment, uh, among other uh, things. Several high-profile news outlets ran pieces aimed at advising readers uh, as to how they might survive holiday gatherings with their relatives. The assumption, perhaps well-placed, was that despite the strength of other affective bonds among family members, Politically divided relatives, nonetheless, would need special assistance in remaining civil over dinner. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, you've argued that civility and even politeness are crucial aspects of our moral lives. And you've also written recently about the political dangers of contempt. What are your thoughts about the state of um, interpersonal discourse these days? Well, um, it has certainly taken a new turn. Uh, it's not entirely unprecedented. Of course, political debates are not new. But I think that most people feel, and I, I think this is probably accurate on both sides of the political spectrum, that things are a bit different at the moment, in part because of what seems to be such a deep divide between, or maybe just among the various sides or various factions in our society. And I think this, I mean, this obviously has really important political ramifications, but I think one of the things that is both sort of philosophically important and um, and also, in my view, interesting is the way in which it has shaped and affected our personal relationships, since many of us have friends and family members with very different political attitudes, and we often find ourselves in company with people who don't share those attitudes. And it could be, you know, at momentous dinners like Thanksgiving, or it could just be in the grocery store, or just, you know, interacting with other cars in parking lots and bumper stickers. And I think that we all feel the need for some reflection or guidance about how to go about this. How do we sort of conduct our ordinary lives with our ordinary expectations of basic decency and civility when we're confronted with the fact that we may think really differently from the people that we're in the grocery store line with? Yeah, and it seems as if there's something about politics, especially perhaps these days, or maybe it's just more amplified these days, in which the the sort of standing rule of just 
don't discuss those topics over dinner. It seems harder for people to countenance. Yeah, I mean, I have to, there's something to that. There is a time and place for political discussion, and the checkout line, particularly if it's the express line at the grocery store, is not one of them, I think. And that's in part because of the project that people are engaged in there. I mean, there are, there are times when people are just sort of trying to get through whatever it is that they're doing and don't necessarily need to be confronted with the facts of political disagreement. On the other hand, this idea that, well, you know, if we just don't talk about it, it will go away um, we've tried that in the past. It doesn't work. And I think it's not just that it's ineffective. I think there's also something troubling about it. Because one of the things that I think most people will recognize as being crucial to, to bridging the divides that we have is the willingness to engage with people, and in particular with people who don't think like us. Now, there's a lot of maps out there that I'm sure you've seen that show the ways in which people are increasingly living in um, sort of political bubbles that are that are affected by the geography of where they are. And so you know, most Trump supporters live near Trump supporters. You know, most Clinton supporters live near other Clinton supporters. You can see this in in the way in which we sort of segregate ourselves. And in some ways that's kind of comforting. It's nice to be thinking that you're in the grocery store with people who just think like you do. Um, on the other hand, there's something difficult about that, both because it reinforces our own beliefs and expectations um, and doesn't force us to confront the limitations on our own understanding of things, um, and also because it doesn't do much to help us understand what's motivating people on the other side of the political divide. So I'm um, from St. Louis, and I live in Washington, D.C., but my husband and kids and I frequently drive from D.C. to various places in the Midwest. And when you do that, when you're driving through West Virginia and Ohio and eastern Kentucky, you see a different kind of world and a different kind of experience than we have in D.C. And I think that if we didn't have that experience and didn't see that, it might be less pressing for us or less pertinent to us in ways that I think would be damaging. I mean, I think it's important, for instance, when I drive through areas of the country that are very deeply affected by the opioid epidemic, that it becomes in some way sort of personal to us, that we have to confront it in a way that we might not otherwise. And, and it sounds to me largely correct that our perception of the depth of the severity, perhaps, of political divides is affected and maybe exacerbated by the perception of other kinds of separations and differences. Yeah, I think it's very easy to demonize people who don't think like us or who didn't vote like us. And this is true on both sides of the issue. It's easy to think of, for instance, coastal elites as people who either don't care about or who are dismissive or contemptuous of other parts of the country. Uh, that is no doubt true of some. It's not true of all. And on the flip side, of course, it's easy for people living on the coast to demonize or dismiss people who live in other parts of the country as being backwater, uneducated in a variety of ways. And I think we all recognize that the only way in some ways to get past this or to think about it is to employ the imagination, to try to sort of understand what the experiences of people are. But even that runs into difficulties because it's very easy for us to just sort of paint our preferred narrative onto other people. And so I think that actual contact with people with whom we disagree is incredibly important, in part because 
people don't always correspond to the narratives that we have about them. And even if we think we're doing a good job of putting ourselves in their shoes, we're not likely to be very accurate in our representations of that, not as accurate as we would be if we actually listened to what they had to say. And so I think there's a great deal of importance to having actual contact with people who don't think like us. And because of that, the sort of confrontation avoidance, um, pleasant as that is, and um, in some ways, and much as I um, have a tendency to do that in my own life, is nevertheless bad, I think, for our democracy, and I think it's bad for the relationships, the personal relationships that we value. If we really value those personal relationships with people who don't think like us, then we have to take seriously those people who don't think like us. And that requires listening to them and listening to what we don't necessarily want to hear. Right, and listening to what they actually say rather than listening to some reportage of what people like them are prone to say or, you know, following some portrayal of um, usually a portrayal produced by people on our side of, of, of things, uh, some portrayal of what people on the other side are like? This is one of the reasons why I think it's incredibly important to read and watch a variety of news sources, even about the same story, because it's pretty obvious, I think, to most of us that even when we're reading good news stories, you know, from media sources that are working really hard to be objective and tell the whole story um, and tell it truthfully, and I do believe that, that that is, in fact, what most people in the media try to do, certainly the mainstream media. But even then, there are ways in which the reporter or that um, – the way in which they see the story is going to affect the narrative that they tell. And because of that, I think it's incredibly important to see how the same story might look from a variety of different perspectives, whether that's sort of reading about it um, in different newspapers, you know, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, or watching it on both, you know, Fox and MSNBC, also getting international perspectives. You know, the, the BBC or The Guardian are going to have a different take on U.S. events than U.S publications do, and all of that is necessary, I think, in part, not just because then we get a broader understanding, but also we can see the ways in which our own tendency to frame issues can be distorted or affected by the way in which it's given to us. And I think that the only way to correct for some of those biases is to see that reasonable people might have framed this differently. Right, right. So, what, what do you make of um, again, g- given some of uh, some of your work, in, including a, a recent uh, wonderful piece in the New York Times about contempt? Um, what do you make of uh, the ways in which large elements of our popular political discourse seem driven by an interest in mocking? political opposition or expressing various kinds of contempt for people on the other side. I mean, pretty robust political vernacular that is populated with insulting terms for our political opponents, like snowflakes and I guess the word socialist is sometimes used as a name. And um, it seems as if so much of the discourse is sort of driven by a portrayal of the people who are with whom we politically disagree, and that portrayal aimed at trying to cast our political 
opponents as unthinking or unsophisticated or not rational or um, failing in some way to do their job as democratic citizens? Yeah, so I my view is that contempt, while tempting um, and sometimes cathartic and sometimes effective, is nevertheless a problem, and it's a moral problem. And the reason I think it's a moral problem um, is that it has what I think of as a kind of dehumanizing effect on its target. So my views on contempt are largely those, um, with some modifications, I think, of Immanuel Kant, the 18th century Prussian philosopher. So Kant thought that contempt, while understandable and natural and sometimes even deserved, was a problem. And it's a problem because when we express contempt, and Kant distinguished between feeling contempt for someone and expressing it. So he would say that, look, sometimes we just can't help feeling contempt for someone. Um, and in some sense, there's no sense. It's not that he didn't think we should try to get over it, but in some ways, that's kind of a pointless endeavor. His concern was more about the expression of contempt. And the expression of contempt for Kant is a problem because of what it does, not just to the person toward whom it's being expressed, although he was concerned about that, but about its broader effects on our capacity to choose to work with each other in a kind of community, whether it's a political community or a moral community or even like a family or friend community. Contempt, on my read, has a particular kind of effect on its target and on the people who are witnessing it. So the idea here is that when you express contempt towards someone, you are not engaging with them. Instead, what you're doing is dismissing them as a worthy participant in the kind of activity or debate that you're in. So contempt is often referred to as being globalist, meaning that it's directed at the entire person. Mm. So when you're when you're annoyed with someone, you're generally annoyed at something that they're doing or something that they have done or said or some habit of theirs. But it's not about the whole person exactly, um, although I guess you could be annoyed at a whole person. But we think of annoyance or even anger as being generally addressed at something a person has done. But contempt works differently. Contempt is addressed at the entire person. It's dismissive in a way that other kinds of reactions to people are not. And it's the dismissiveness that I think is a moral problem. And it's particularly a moral problem when you put it in the context of social power and social relationships. So in the New York Times piece, I mentioned Trump's widely discussed and criticized mockery of Serge Kovaleski, a New York Times reporter with a physical disability. So Trump mocked him on televised speech, and it was pretty instantly recognizable as mockery of him and mockery of him in virtue of his disability. This was actually one of the things that people thought might do Trump in politically, although it didn't, of course. But even among Trump supporters, it was widely criticized because everyone can recognize that mocking someone with a disability is a way of marginalizing them or suggesting that they don't need to be taken seriously. Now, a New York Times reporter is not exactly a socially vulnerable person, but many people with disabilities are. And one of the the things that people realize is that when you have someone who was at the time a candidate for the presidency taking advantage of that status to mock someone in virtue of a physical characteristic that tends to make them socially marginalized anyway, that it's exacerbating 
that marginalization and suggesting that the person isn't really important, that their views don't need to be taken into account because of this disability. And I think many people were able to recognize that is morally problematic. I think where it gets harder are the cases where the contempt might seem like it's perhaps deserved, like when we hold people in contempt or express contempt because of things that they've said or done that we can recognize as being morally troubling. There it becomes more difficult because we may think, look, this person deserves to be mocked. They deserve to be held in contempt. Even in those cases, though, I'm inclined to say that we have strong moral reasons not to express our outrage about what someone has said or done in contemptuous terms. A small piece of pushback here, maybe. Uh, one might accept the way that you've cast the episode with Trump, and part of what was morally awful about that episode was, as you mentioned, that the difference in power, right? Certainly a New York Times journalist is not vulnerable compared to a national candidate for the nomination of a major political party. There was a power difference between the forum in which Trump uh, mocked the reporter was not a forum in which the reporter could have responded and, and all the rest. If the power element or the power dimension is different, um, does the moral story change? So socially more vulnerable people mocking the president for his appearance, is that objectionable as well? So I think there's two layers to what contempt is doing. The one, as we might say, is kind of expressing something. So contempt is expressing an attitude toward someone or something, and the attitude is the one I was describing as a kind of dismissiveness. I think that it is morally problematic to express that attitude at any point, but I also think that it is somewhat less problematic in some cases rather than others. And so um, in a really great book called Hard Feelings, McAllister Bell um, gives a defense of contempt part of what she's doing in that book, um, in which she argues that expressing contempt can be a way of of asserting or articulating self-respect in the face of challenges to one's standing, and she's talking about this particularly in the context of racism. (laughs) Um, And I find this view compelling on some levels. I do think that there's something to it. Um, I'm not sure that she and I agree about what counts as contempt, so there's a philosophical dispute about what what actually qualifies as contempt there. But I think that there's another layer to what's happening, apart from the expressive part of contempt, and that has to do with the way that contempt functions um, in social arrangements, as, as I like to think of it as a kind of tool. And to say that contempt functions as a tool is to say that it does things, that it changes mm. what is happening in the social interaction. So we're all we've all been in a context, right, where you know, we're at a party or we're at some kind of social gathering and something happens, maybe someone says something or does something that alters the social relationships of the people who are there. So this is one of the ways in which, say, racist or sexist humor gets off the ground. So if someone makes a sexist joke, what they have done is alter the relationships of the people in the group. So if someone makes a sexist joke in the context of, say, a business meeting, then any of the women who are present at the meeting are suddenly put into a different kind of social position in virtue of that because they are then made the targets of a joke that picks them out in virtue of being women in a way that alters the shape of that interaction, even if the interaction itself is on some other topic. So, To say that contempt is a tool means that some people, when they deploy it, 
are more effective at marginalizing others. And that's in part because their contempt is backed up with the ability to act on it and to, to take steps or do things that would marginalize people to sign executive orders or to pass laws or to um, exclude people from in various ways. And also because if they have social power, they have a way of altering other people's perceptions of that person's status. Unfortunately, having social power makes it more possible for you to marginalize people through your contempt. And so one of my concerns about Bell's position is that when a a member of a vulnerable group expresses contempt, it may be effective as an expression of contempt, but they're not in a position to alter the social arrangements in a way that would put them back on an equal standing. Right. What lessons should we take away from the way our, our, even our sort of small-scale interpersonal relations are affected by and maybe negatively impacted by the political scene? Do you have any advice or lessons uh, that we should take away from the state of affairs that are prevailing? Well, one of the things that I think would be really um, unfortunate turn of events is if the political divides end up dividing people in other ways as well and making them forget about the things that have brought them together in other contexts. So, you know, if if political divides are disrupting, you know, community efforts at organizing around sort of, you know, making their own communities more livable around their schools and so forth, then we are allowing our political divides to have a much deeper and more profound effect on our community than I think they have to be. So I think there is a point to trying to consider the appropriate boundaries of political discourse and not turn everything into a political debate or an opportunity for a kind of political evangelization. I have mixed views about bumper stickers, actually, interestingly. Uh, You know, this is tough. Um, You know, when you're driving around in a car, especially if you're driving in traffic and you have a bumper sticker, you're expressing your views on something, but in a way that makes it impossible for others to sort of avoid that kind of confrontation, whether or not they want to do that. And some people will say, well, that's good, that's important, we have to be confronting these issues, it's really important, and I see that. But at the same time, I think that there's, we also need to take into account the fact that we need to have places and spaces where we can engage with others in terms that don't bring in the kind of political divides that we may experience. And I think it's hard to say whether things like Facebook or other kinds of social networking sites should be more like that or whether they should be more political. I have mixed views about this in my own social media life. Having said that, I also think that we can't just let things slide or go underground Mm. without taking seriously the fact that we have these deep disputes. There's reason to draw boundaries around the spaces where we engage in political debates, but also reason to have those debates within those boundaries and not to shy or back away from them. And this is in part because I think if our tendency is to think, you know, I can't deal with these people, right, because they don't think like me or this is how I view them, then we're going to shut off the possibility of important relationships that are, and they're relationships that might be important to us for other reasons because you know these are our family members or these are people we grew up with or people that we care about deeply but also because they're our fellow citizens and I don't think that we can just sort of drop those ties because people's views make us uncomfortable or we find them unpleasant and if we do that we're going to be impoverishing ourselves in a in a much wider array 
of ways than we would otherwise have to be. It does seem that maybe part of the, the diagnosis is that our civic life has sort of been saturated with a conception of itself that is political in a very particular way uh, to the exclusion of other maybe broader senses of the political. That is that sort of our civic life seems to be so focused on national, you know, high stakes politics that other things that seem to me to be you know, proper candidate for civic life and even, you know, a broader sense of social and political life seem to be crowded out. I think that's right. I think that it becomes too easy. Everything becomes a political discussion, particularly if it's framed in very specific terms, say, about the current administration. Then it, it prevents us from seeing the what we have, not just what we have in common with each other, but also the sort of collective project that we have of sort of living our lives with each other. And so it's easy to sort of forget how many other kinds of projects and, and endeavors that we have in our lives that require cooperation with our neighbors and with our communities and that are important human goods. So if I can go off topic here just so, ever so slightly. Sure. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast this question about sort of holiday dinners and sort of our feeling that we need help to get through a holiday dinner with our family members who might disagree with us. So Immanuel Kant, who's often thought of as being sort of the height of ivory tower intellectual, um, unconcerned with the nitty-gritty of ordinary life, and that's not entirely um, unfounded, on the other hand, had some really interesting stuff to say about how to conduct a dinner party. He had a lot of opinions about it, and they were opinions that were tied in interesting ways to his views about sort of the point and purpose of political community and moral community and the discourse and debate that happens there. So Kant thought that because each of us is limited in what we can know through our own experiences, we are dependent on other people to enhance um, and extend our own understanding of the world. And so it's we all have reason to engage with people who can help us learn more about the world in which we inhabit and how to live in it. And so for Kant, it would be really important for each of us to surround ourselves with people that we disagree with, because if we don't, we're going to be afforded or, or foiled in this really important human endeavor of increasing our understanding. But at the same time, Khan also recognized that debates and disputes like this are really difficult to manage well. And what's interesting about his account of dinner parties is how he ties the the goals of dinner parties, which he takes to have to do with um, promoting our um, increasing our understanding of the world and promoting community, uh, which he takes to be the central goals of a dinner party, how he ties that to sort of the physical state of people at dinner parties. So he has an account of how dinner party conversations ought to go that tracks what people's physical states will be like. So when people arrive at a dinner party, they tend to be hungry, and so he thinks it's a mistake to just sort of jump in with political argument there because it's not going to go well. Instead, people, while they're still working on the first course, should be discussing sort of the events of the, you know, what they've learned, reporting basically on the news, although Kant wasn't focused so much on fake news, maybe <laughs> reporting on the news has become um, more controversial. And then as sort of the meal goes on, then 
then one can engage in more complex debates and discussions about things. And then Kant realized, though, that once you get toward the end of the meal, when people have perhaps had a bit too much to drink, then it's best to lay off on those heavy-duty topics and instead turn to, as you said, jesting, humor, because it will aid in the digestion, among other things. It's not just that. It's also because he thinks that if we prioritize furthering our understanding at the expense of community, we will have missed the point. And the same thing is true on the other side. If we prioritize harmony over improving our understanding, we will have also missed the point. What we have to do is both. We have to find ways to enhance and extend our own understanding of the world without disrupting or destroying our communities. And Kant knew that was hard, but he thought it was really, really important. And I think Kant is right about that. We have to, in the coming months and years, as we try to sort of work out what our country will be and what we'll be like, we have to find a way to do both those things, to work on our collective project of understanding without destroying the things that make that project worth doing. Karen, that's a wonderful, not only rendition of a very interesting discussion in Kant that philosophers and others should, I think, pay much more attention to than they tend to, but also a nice encapsulation in your own voice of the project that we are now confronting. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. And Thank you, listener, for checking out the Why We Argue podcast, which, again, is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and Facebook at, one word, Public Humility. Thank you, and bye for now. <laughs>